Welcome to the Lancet Respiratory Medicine Podcast. I'm Aaron Van Dorn, speaking to you from the Lancet's New York office. I recently spoke with Dr. Theodora Washna of the University of Michigan and the Veterans Affairs Center for Clinical Management Research about the differences between acute critical illness and persistent critical illness, and what that means for treating patients. Dr. Awashna, your study investigated a population of patients who had persistent critical illness. Could you explain the hallmarks of persistent critical illness as opposed to acute critical illness? Why is it useful to delineate the two? Absolutely, Erin, and thanks so much for having me on. Acute critical illness is what ICUs are good at. Those are people who come in with a often quite focused problem or set of problems and who we can resuscitate and try to make better. We found that when we reflected back on our own experiences ICU attendings, that there were another group of patients, that there were those group of patients who kind of were stuck in bed 38 and who never seemed to be able to actually get well enough to leave the ICU, but nor were they dying acutely. Instead, they seemed to be a group of people who had a new problem every day. It was that feeling that there were a group of patients who had cascading critical illness. One day they were septic, the next day they had worsened respiratory failure. Two days later, both of those were better, but they developed a GI bleed. And what we wanted to try to capture and see if it was a real thing or not was this notion that there are these patients with persistent critical illness who instead of just having one well-defined problem or one cluster of well-defined problems, instead had ongoing and cascading new problems. How did you set about trying to pinpoint the moment when acute critical illness becomes persistent critical illness, and what were your findings? So we were worried that if we went immediately to the bedside and started to pull apart these stories, we'd end up telling ourselves just those stories and get confused. So instead, what we wanted to do was ask, at a population level, is there a point where who you were before you were in the ICU is more predictive of whether or not you're going to be discharged alive from the hospital than the reason you came into the ICU. Now, when people first come into the ICU, their acute severity of illness is hugely important. And their acute diagnoses and their patchy scores and the other kind of usual measures of severity illness are enormously predictive of whether or not they're going to live or die. But what we found, a little to our surprise, was that over the coming days, the predictiveness of that your presenting complaint and presenting severity of illness really fell off. And by day 10, we found that if you knew someone's age, their pa- a little bit about their past medical history, their gender, that was actually more predictive of subsequent mortality in the ICU than all the things we knew about their acute severity of illness. And that to us seemed like it was the hallmark of persistent critical illness at a population level. That persistent critical illness was when who you were mattered more than why you'd come into the ICU. And that that was what was different from acute critical illness, where really your presenting complaint is the dominant matter, the dominant issue in how sick you're going to be and your odds of surviving. What are the practical implications of your findings? What measures should be taken to reduce the rates of persistent critical illness and the disproportionate burden that this condition places on health systems? You know, so it's easy to get on podcasts and say, hey, look, my one study proves that this new syndrome is the absolutely most important thing in the world and everyone should start acting based on my intuitions from one study. That seems a little arrogant and a little unfair. We think of this as a first step in a long project to try to make sure that this clinical intuition, that there was this thing called persistent critical illness, this cascading critical illness, is really a thing and not just a thing we happen to notice, but not something that's important. Certainly the fact that this is so true in Australia and New Zealand is very encouraging and suggests we're on to something. But we feel first, before anybody changes their practice based on this, they need to replicate this and make sure this is true in other populations.
because we don't know how much of this is dependent on particular practice patterns. I think as an American intensivist, this resonates with my own experience, but I could be wrong and I don't know for sure. That being said, even as we're continuing our research to make sure that this is a real and generalizable phenomena, we also are preparing for kind of two rounds of things to help get this to the bedside. The first is really trying to move from the population level to a bedside level where individual patients could be diagnosed as saying, yes, they're now in a persistent critical illness phase or not. We've got a bunch of studies planned to help do that. Once we've done that, we can then start thinking about enrolling them in trials or thinking about avoidance of persistent critical illness as a thing you can compare systems across and as a thing you can use as an outcome of trials. And I think the immediate thing is to avoid anchoring bias. So anchoring bias, as you probably know, is where I remain fixated on who somebody was a few days ago, as opposed to dealing with the situation in front of me. I was really surprised by how quickly the severity of illness stopped being useful. You know, after you've been in an ICU for a few days, we still usually present you as, this is Mr. J, who's a 65-year-old guy who was admitted with pneumonia. What our data suggests is that even by the end of the first week, that what they were admitted for doesn't really matter. And if that's true, then the fact that we usually think of patients still in terms of their admitting chief complaint, even weeks after their admission to the hospital, means that we might be anchoring and we might be making decisions based on who they were as opposed to their ongoing problems. Because our data strongly suggests after 10 days, what you came in with the ICU is much less important and we need to stop anchoring on those. So people who were really, really sick when they came in, if they're still there 10 days later, that history doesn't matter. And conversely, if people who were expected to be just kind of a tea and toast get in and out, 10 days later, they might be just as sick as that person who was surviving a cardiac arrest. And we need to be sure that we're updating our probabilities and our prognoses and our decision-making in light of who the patient is in front of us, not who they were a week prior. Well, Dr. Iwashina, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, it's an incredible pleasure, Aaron.